I remember, this is a long story, but I, I, I remember this Take is what we were, uh, we were water rafting, you know, like floating down the river on the Colorado River. And this kid um, looks up at the rocks. He's like, yo, son, those are sedimentary rocks. <laughs> breaking down the rock formations. He's like, and you can see in that layer right there that they probably had a drought. And he's just like looking at the layers on the rocks. And I looked, I was like, I could, I'm like, yo, son, those are sedimentary rocks, right? It was like hilarious to me. But at the same time, I was like, that's what I'm talking about. Like he's learning and he has adapted his learning to his life. And it just, it just floored me. And so I just fell in love with the whole idea of charter schools because I realized that what charter schools do is that they have autonomy over you know traditional schools so you can go into a welcome charter to the millennials and money podcast the podcast dedicated to encourage millennials to continue to make wise decisions with their money we find some of the best ways to learn is through stories so each week your host and wealth advisor Payne Boyer invites a millennial guest on the show to share their money story thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show this week, I have a very special guest. I have Miss Jay Artist Wright. Say hello, Jay. Hey, everyone. <laughs> hey, Jay. So I'm going to give you a second to introduce yourself here in a bit and tell the people more about what you do and what makes you special. But first, I'm going to share just how you and I know each other. <clears throat> so, Jay, you and I know each other through a mutual friend. Um, yes. Through a previous guest on the show, Jovan Ag. He was on the show, and he's a colleague of mine. He, told, he knows I do financial planning. And he said he has a friend of his, a colleague of his, who needs some tax advice. I introduced you to a CPA, and we spoke for a bit. I talked to you about the CPA. And then, like anybody, after I spoke to you, I said, well, let me Google this person, see who she is. I just saw <laughs> I saw the awesome stuff you did. I said, you know what? I got to get her on my show. So I reached out to you, and you were, you were definitely you just, you were happy to be on the show. So I'm glad to have you here, Jay. Yeah. So we, we don't go too far back. That's about as far as you and I go back. Why don't you share with the people and me who you are, what you do, and some things that make you unique? Wow. Well, first, it's so funny because I, I try not to be Googleable. <laughs> so, so to hear, to see whatever it is that you had, I'm like, oh, okay, that's that's interesting. I, I got to pause there because for me, the listeners know I used to be a professional boxer. So when okay. you when you Google me, unfortunately, all you find is me getting knocked out. So. <laughs> So, so when you're looking for a financial advisor, I don't think that's what you want to see when you find that financial advisor. So, so when you find someone to fix your Google, let me know so I can fix mine. All right, all right, I will for sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, a little bit about me. Um, gosh, where do I start? Uh, I'm a first generation college graduate. I guess that's really important to know. That's awesome. Um, yeah, everyone in my family went into the military, um, which is one of the reasons why I've actually moved around several different places. Um, but primarily, you know, I am a professional. I'm a mother of three. Um, I love the outdoors. I've been an avid hiker and, uh, you know, camper. Um, in my professional life, I've always been someone that's, that's been driven to work on advocacy issues and for the underserved. So right now I am yeah, the vice president of public affairs and policy for the California Charter Schools Association, um, which is a trade association that um, seeks to create more um, alternative education opportunities in the charter school sector, um, different from the traditional sector. 
And in my specific role, I'm really focused on equity and making sure that um, charter schools serve some of the most marginalized students. Um, so I advocate at the Capitol for issues around equity, um, specifically like making sure that the local control funding formula that serves um, those types of marginalized students, that they get direct access to those funds. So stuff like that. Um, but most of my life, my career has been basically an advocate for the underserved. Um, so that's kind of me. That's awesome. You know, it's it's a passion. That's I'm so big on people being driven by passion, and especially like charter school is such an area that some of people aren't familiar with. We're diving a little deeper. We get a bit. bit. I'm actually a charter school student, so it made a huge impact on my life growing up and got me out of some some uh, got me onto a different path than where I was originally my original trajectory. So that's huge. Yeah. But um, you know, this podcast is all is all about money. And, so, and it's about people sharing their money stories and their mind, money concepts. And I find that many times people's overall mindset around money, it, the, the foundation for that mindset gets planted from a young age. And of mm -hmm. course, at any time that can always change throughout life, but that's kind of where those initial cornerstones get put in place. So let's talk about what money was like for you and your household growing up. Yeah, um, so... <laughs> Money was very tight for my family. Um, I, I'm the youngest of four. Um, my, my, old, my eldest sibling, there's about a 14 year age gap between us. Um, and she had children really young. So even by the time I was 10, I was an auntie. So I'm pretty much the youngest of six um, because I was also taking care of uh, my, my sister's two children. But uh, money was interesting because we had such a big household. My mother was a small business owner. My father was an engineer um, by trade. Um, like I said, both of my parents served in the military. And so service is definitely ingrained in me and also work. So I had my first job at 16, um, working as like an inventory clerk at my mom's um, salon. Um, at the same time, I think that now that I'm older and I reflect back, I realize that it was all about work. Um, I never really was taught about like savings and, you know, stuff like that. I did have a bank account, but a lot of what I learned about finances, I learned from family members and from, um, friends who did go to college, you know, had parents that were first, second generation college students, which is one of the reasons why college appealed to me. Um, so I think one of the best lessons I learned was from a friend's father who basically was like, always have a savings for yourself. Um, you know, even at the youngest age, try to establish a savings of 500 to a thousand dollars. You know, if, even if you're not making a lot of money, um, create a savings for yourself, always have good credit. Um, and then, you know, ultimately try to, um, diversify what you're doing. Don't be linear in the way that you look at your work. Um, so, for example, like I, I didn't mention that in addition to my day job, I also do consulting on the side and I, I help people who want to run for political office. And so, um, you know, hopefully that'll manifest itself into more of a full time thing. But I've kind of been one of those people that have always had, you know, two or three jobs here or there, my main job and then the one job that I could use to make a savings for myself. Um, so money was definitely I learned I learned the hard way. My, my mother and father. Um, you know, they, they didn't have the best credit at times. And I had a really um, interesting childhood because we would have highs and lows. You know, sometimes we'd be in the best of situations, sometimes we'd be in the worst. And so for me, um, at an early age, I learned that security was really important. And so my money trail was mainly about like how to do things differently from my parents <laughs> and um, to be a little bit more, uh, what's the word, a little bit more um, disciplined 
I guess, probably too much. So I think that I, you know, there were times that I can, you know, college specifically that, you know, my girlfriends are going out buying little coach purses and stuff. And I was like, nah, I'm not going to do that. You know, cause I was just so, <laughs> like, making sure that I had a savings for myself. Yeah, no, you said a lot there. And, and you know, it's, a lot, it's, it's like that for a lot of us, especially whose parents kind of were the first. Our par- my parents are baby boomers. I'm assuming yours are probably baby boomers as well. And big African-American, they're kind of the first, the first ones who are really able to reach success and strive for success. And then so they, so they can bring money in the household, but no one's taught them the cornerstones about money management. Exactly, and, yeah. And so they can teach us to work hard and grind hard and, like you mentioned, you said you are always, your parents are always still the work ethics in you. But they, there was something that was, there's a missing link there was that money management part. And that's because the predecessors in my industry, they weren't targeting people like our parents. No. They, they, they weren't looking for them to teach them how to be wise with money. So it wasn't like it's not something their parents, they didn't know what they didn't, what, what they didn't know. And that's exactly mm-hmm. what it was. And you were so blessed to have your, your, um, your, your, the family friend, the father of your, um, of your friend, Talk to you about saving and just putting money aside and not only saving, but diversifying your revenue streams, which is huge. And what you're still doing today with consulting, you know, we talk so much about diversification and, um, and what I do in my industry, as far as investing and diversifying your asset classes, but it's big to diversify your revenue streams too. Like that, that's something I, I always uh, push my clients to do. Like if you have a passion or a skill that you're good at, you don't have to quit your day job. <laughs> you don't have to quit your day job just yet. But it's nice to have some create some extra income and have it come in the household. Yeah, yeah, it really is, and it's been something. My husband, uh, he he thought I was crazy when I first you know started doing this, and then you know I I didn't say anything to him because I had to lead by example with him sometimes. And so then I just you know had like a separate account and kept putting money away, kept putting money away, and then finally towards the end of the year, I showed him how much I had saved just from doing like you know, side consulting. And he was just like, we need to keep doing that. And I was just, <laughs> just like, now you need to do something so we can both make this money. <laughs> so, so talk about the time when you got a little more independent, you know, you've taken those work efforts you had that your parents instilled in you, taking those saving tips, putting money aside for yourself and that your that the friend and family taught you. Let's talk about something that, let's talk about what life was like when you got a little more independent, when you kind of mm-hmm. got, I know not, not quite your uh, your success success years, but just kind of more independent. Just some so just just the way the things you learned growing up have carried into your adulthood. Yeah, um, like I said, service to others is really huge. Um, my family uh, they're also devout Christians and believe in God and, and prayer and tithing and all that stuff. Um, and so for me, it was a combination of. You know, I think we all like in our twenties, especially kind of rebel against some of those things, you know. So I, I didn't I didn't tithe, but I definitely was one I believe that service to others and um, you know, having a foundation in God is important. Um and I've always carried that in you know, from my parents. You know, I feel like at my when I feel like I'm not balanced, I always find time to, you know, for prayer or meditation or just really getting entrenched and like, you know, throwing on some gospel music and taking long walks or something like that, which I think is like, it's like my way of like, just kind of recentering. Um, so that's something I've carried on. Um, at the same time, I would say that, uh, like in my early twenties, especially I was so serious. I'm so glad to say that I'm not that serious now, (laughs) but I, I took myself too seriously. Um, I was so in a hurry to be the adult and to, 
um, have all the things that, you know, the marriage, the house, and, and I don't fault anyone for wanting to have that. But for me specifically, since I had been working since I was 16, by the time I got to my mid twenties, I was kind of burnt out. I was really like, all I've done my entire life is work. You know, like I said, I, I sacrificed, you know, the trips that my girlfriends were going on and the coach purses because I felt like I had to be, you know, really an adult and be making adult decisions. And so, uh, I kind of hit a wall <laughs> and just was like, yeah, I'm not going to do this. I need to just take a pause, which is why I shared with you earlier that I, I kind of went on sabbatical a little bit and, uh, traveled, traveled the world some, but a lot of that was based because I just felt like I wasn't living, you know, I was just like, like my parents, I was just working every day, coming home, working every day, coming home. I didn't really establish a lifestyle for myself. Um, and I, I wanted, and I was, you know, intrigued about what else was there more than just kind of like, you know, getting that house and that family and, and working every day. So that's and, <laughs> I'm big on that with my clients. You know, I always talk about, to me, financial success is enjoying your life now while you're trying to achieve future financial goals. And it's so easy to forget one or the other. Like all you want to do is enjoy your life now and not track towards the future. All you're doing in your case is tracking towards that future and trying to achieve that future success that you're not enjoying your life now and the journey there. Yeah. So it's, it's big on finding that balance, that balance and being responsible when it comes to planning for the future. But your life doesn't need to suck. You got to be able to travel, spend time. You want to be happy. To put, your best belt, to put your best self forward, I feel, you have to be happy. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. I read this book, The 4-Hour Workweek. That book yeah. changed my life. That book, right? That single book was the book. I was like, that's it. Like, I've got my Bible. I got my blueprint. Like, I know what I'm going to do. Um, and it, it really just made me make so many different decisions, um, even about how I looked at, like, my nine to five type of work. Um, but yeah, that book is that book, that single book made me reevaluate all the decisions that I was making because I realized that I was um, spending so much time working for others who were making way more money than I was um, and just doing things that I didn't really love that I was like, I got to switch this up. And then, you know, the book tells you about like how you could travel on a dime and all that type of stuff. So I, I really took that book to heart and, and like used it as a way to like really change my lifestyle up. I'll make sure I put the book in the show notes. So let's kind of fast forward a bit. You talked about what, what money was like in your household growing up and the guidance from your family, friend, also from your parents when it comes to your, their work ethic. Let's talk about time you got a little more independent. I understand you went to USC, mm-hmm. which, is, which is huge. I also understand you lived in Southern California. So, going, so living in Southern California and going to USC, is, it's, it had to have been the dream. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, no, it wasn't because, like I said, I, um, I, I was in Sacramento, actually, when I got accepted to USC. Okay. And, um, and so what I did was... Um, I, when I graduated from college, I took about two, I think two years off, two or three years off before I um, applied to graduate school. Okay. And, and so my, my USC experience was graduate level. It wasn't undergrad. Yeah. I went oh. to undergrad. Yeah. Okay. However, I do know about the USC experiences for sure. Cause I went to Cal State Fullerton, <laughs> which wasn't that far away. So like USC and UCLA, like we'd all, you know, swarm on those campuses for like you know all the fun stuff so yeah okay so so let, let's talk about that like let's talk about the the from um from getting to undergrad going to usc you are you at cal state fullerton or you at sac state 
I was at Cal State Fullerton for three and a half years, and oh. then I got an internship offer at Cal State Sacramento, and I transferred. So I graduated from Sac State, but I only spent a year there. Okay, so let's talk about those, that, those grind years of putting the work in at school to eventually get to USC. Mm-hmm. And, and were you, were you financially responsible for yourself at that point? Did you have yeah. some help from parents? What, what was that like for you? No, I've been financially responsible for myself. I actually uh, emancipated myself um, from my family to go to school. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, and so I've been, I've been, you know, financially responsible for myself for for several years since I was eighteen. Um, and what it was like was hard, man. I mean, I <laughs> I remember uh, the ninety nine cent Wendy's menu very well. <laughs> <laughs> Because I, you know, I didn't have money and I, I, ri- I first applied to law school and thought I was going to go to law school. But to be honest with you, um, my best friend went to law school and she graduated you know, a few years. Like I said, I, I took some time off. So she graduated when I was thinking about going into graduate school and she graduated and she was like $150,000 in debt. Oh my gosh. And like what? And, and her first job, she was making like 80 grand. And so she was upside down. And so when I saw that, I was like, okay, let me rethink this law school thing because the last thing I want to do is come out and, you know, have, having to be in servitude to pay back my student loan debt. So I took a couple of years off and just, like I said, once again, just really worked and tried to figure out what I was going to do. Um, I did a fellowship. That's another thing I did in Sacramento. I did a um, capital fellowship, which allowed me to work in the, um, the Senate um, and then got connected to a really good job opportunity. So by the time that I thought about going to graduate school, I actually had support from my job and, um, and I had scholarship opportunities. So I didn't have to take out as much loans. And it's exactly why I chose graduate school as opposed to law school, because um, I could have done either or based off of the fact that I'm in policy. But graduate school, I was like, all right, I can come out. I won't have any debt. <laughs> you know what I mean? I could make the same you know, amount of money or equivalent to the amount of money that I'd probably make if I went to the type of law school that I wanted to go to. So let me go ahead and, and go this route. Um, but it was tough. I mean, I, <laughs> as I slept, I was, a cou- I was couch surfing. Back then they didn't call it couch mm-hmm. surfing, but you know, I slept on my, my sister's couch at times. I, like, you know, I, didn't, uh, I didn't want to pay rent my second year because I had to pay for school. So I, you know, slept on my sister's couch. Um, I took classes, not only, I took satellite classes. So I took classes on the USC campus, but I also drove to Sacramento because they had like weekend classes. So you can go from Friday to Sunday, but you'd be in class all day. Um, But I did that because I had to stop working for a short period of time and I didn't have an income. So I was like, I got to get this done, you know, quickly (laughs) so I can get back to work. So, um, you know, I lost about 30 pounds because I <laughs> did not have any money. When I, I am not playing, when I tell you the Wendy's 99 cent meal was my friend, I would, mm-hmm. you know, go get something from there and I'd hop on the road and get on the road to go, you know, go to school, um, come home, get fed by my sister who, you know, was married with children. Um, I, I don't recommend that route for anybody, but you know, it, it definitely, it, 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 uh, now I'm blessed that I did that way because, like I said, I don't have a lot of student debt that I would have had um, if I if I didn't do it that way. No, I'm curious about that drive. You know, the, you like you said, you've been working since a young age. You started working at 16. Um, you you're working at 18. You emancipated yourself at 18, so at that point you're independent at 18 years old, and you still decide to go to school. You know, it's so easy to get consumed with work and with the responsibility that you have. To think. 
I can't go to school. Like I don't have time. I don't have time or the money. And and most people don't, but you were able to still make it happen. So what was that like? What was that driving force behind that to, to make to, to make you see this is the right decision to make? I'll make it happen, and I'm going to do it without taking on a ton of debt. Yeah, I, 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 get, I attest a lot of it to my my friend's parents. Um, they both went to college. Um, uh, his mother was my English teacher in junior high school, and so they just really encouraged me. And they were just like, you know what, you need to go to college. Um, this is a great, great route for you. And so I had a lot of um, external support to just keep me going. Um, there were times where, you know, literally my first semester of college, my friend's mother wrote me a check to pay for my tuition, which to this day, I'm so humbled by. Um, so it, it just was, you know, just people in my life who just really encouraged me and said, keep going, you know, you're on the right path. Every time that I felt like I was, you know, needed to quit or stop, even my, even my family, they were like, no, you can find a way. And I just, I never accepted that it was impossible. I always just found a way. Just, you know, like I said, if I had to, you know, sleep at a friend's house for a few weeks or, you know, ha- one time I had like six roommates, you know what I mean? Because we just all needed a place to stay to get it done. I just, I just believed that I needed to get it done and that, you know, the, the investment that I was making or the sacrifices that I was making now was an investment and that long-term, you know, would pay off. So, yeah. No, I, for a few things there, like, the drive of like whatever it takes. That's what I'm hearing is like whatever it takes. You knew what you wanted to have. You knew what the prize was. You knew you had your eyes on the prize. You wanted to sacrifice couch surfing. Uh, nine nine cent many at Wendy's. I've been there too. The double cheese. The, there is the bacon double cheeseburger. That's not so bad actually. <laughs> but but I know what you mean. Like you had to sacrifice for what it took. And the fact that your your friends' parents they they sold into you. They helped you. And I think that's that's kind of I, I think it's huge. I, I hope you got a chance to share with them how big impact impact that made on your life because it's important, you know, just for us, for me now, I still think about like there's other advisors out there who were, who are where I was five, six years ago and they need someone like me to kind of help pull them up. So I, I'm trying to be conscious on giving back like people have given into my life. So that's, that's huge. I appreciate you sharing that story. So we've talked a lot about your successes and your wins and, you look like a rock star right now, Thank but we, I, I got to ask you, because I know it happens to everybody. Let's talk about a time where you were, you were, you've been financially independent from a very young age. Let's talk about a time you've been smacked in the face with reality when it comes to your finances. And, oh, yeah. and share a story if you have one. Yeah, I do. So, um, so like I said, in 2008, I took a sabbatical off of life. I literally, you know, quit my job. This is, uh, I was working uh, in the corporate world at that time and um, just was not happy, not inspired. And so I was like, you know what? I had a savings, um, like I mentioned, and I basically blew it. <laughs> so I took my <laughs> savings. I, I took my savings that I was, you know, that I acquired to potentially put down on a down payment of a home. And I just went crazy and was like, I'm going to travel around the world. And so I uh, quit my job and I moved to Spain and lived in Spain for three months and then left Spain and, and uh, because the Euro was like 165 to the dollar at the time. And uh, then I moved to Costa Rica and, you know, r- used the rest of my savings in Costa Rica. <laughs> um, if you can recall 2008, uh, we were in the middle of a recession. Um, so I came back home thinking, oh, you know, I've got this master's degree, I've got all this job experience, I don't have no problem getting a job. 
it took me a year and a half to get a job. Um, and also because I didn't want to go back into corporate. So I was trying to like transition to the nonprofit world. And so when people looked at my resume, they were like, well, you know, you used to work for Fox. Like, why do you want to work in the nonprofit world right now? And so it was tough. And then I was trying to work in the education space and I didn't have a lot of education experience on my resume. So like I had, I could have wallpapered my entire house with the amount of rejection letters. I was, <laughs> it was tough. It was really tough. Um, I mean, I remember having like $25 in my account uh, and, and, and that was it. And like, just thinking like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And like I said, I, I will attest to the fact that like, I, I, my friend's father also told me never to really finance a car. If you're going to get a car, I always buy it outright. And so thankfully I had a car that wasn't financed. I didn't have to worry about a car payment or anything. Didn't have any children, anything like that. So it was pretty much just me. And, and like I said, I was like a nomad. I was basically homeless, like, you know, living out of my backpack, just trying to figure it out. But the, the most shocking thing was to look at my account and realize I only had like $25 in my account. Whereas, you know, a year before that I had, you know, 20,000 in my account. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, wow. However, it was like one of the best things I could have ever done because it just like the experience of being able to travel and see other countries, um, really take a pause from life, especially for me, because I'd always been so headstrong about doing everything. I would, I would do it all over again. Um, I'd probably stay more money though, um, because you know, no one wants to be like that. But I think that the 2008 recession really just hit me hard and I just did not have I did not know what I was going to do and I didn't know what I didn't, I knew what I didn't want to do. I knew I didn't want to go back into corporate, but trying to make that transition and, uh, you know, into a new, new career where unemployment was high, was just like almost impossible. So it took me a long time to kind of get it right. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm big on all my clients having a savings, of course, and using that for the emergency reserves, but also purposing their money to and every dollar having a purpose. I always talk about, I call it money purpose plan, my fancy way of saying budget, like, and purposing the travel money for that. I don't think that's what your savings was initially purposed for. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, I, one that I do tell my younger clients who are single with no kids, like you were the time, like you, this is your time. Yep. Like this, this is, if you want to travel the world, it's got to happen now. Cause trust me as a parent of two and a husband, it's not, if it's going to happen again, it's going to be after my kids are in college. So, yes. so yeah. if you want to do it now, take advantage of it now. Don't don't use all your money. Don't use all your savings. Yeah, don't do what I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this is time to do it. But you mentioned mm -hmm. uh, you worked it for corporate. You were working for, I believe you worked at Fox, yes. Fox Studios. Mm -hmm. So how'd you end up there? Talk about your experience there and, what, and why you eventually decided to leave. Yeah. So uh, I ended up there. Um, funny story. I was, I was working for another organization called Screen Actors Guild, which is a, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've heard of SAG, Screen Actors Guild. They're, they're called SAG after now, but they're basically an entertainment performers union. <clears throat> I ended up there uh, because I did go to USC and a lot of um, performers go to USC. USC has a really good performing school. And so I met a woman who was looking for someone to work in the government affairs department, which is exactly what I had just done, um, you know, prior to to uh, prior to graduate school. So I got the job at Screen Actors Guild doing government affairs, and um, you know, one of my jobs was to go out and basically advise performers 
on different things relating to legislation. Um, and a lot of it was hobnobbing with people. And so the president of SAG and I at the time went to a golfing event. And at the golfing event, um, I met this woman who worked for Fox Entertainment. And she just really kind of took to me. And so I really got the job from golfing. <laughs> I was like golfing with, you know, some some high profile performers. And um, they took to me, they heard a little bit about my background and my story. They knew I worked in government affairs and they had like a state and local government affairs position that they were hiring for. And, you know, just being in the right place at the right time, I, um, I got the job. And uh, it was a really cool experience because I... Um, was working at the time where myspace.com, which used, you know, before Facebook, there was this MySpace um, social media group. So I, I was there. Yeah. What you say? I was going to say, I'm not sure our listeners know about it, but I know about it. I know, right? Yeah. yeah it's millennials. So millennials may not know, <laughs> but yeah, but myspace.com was like the original Facebook. It actually, uh, Facebook was in second place when, when MySpace social media took, took form. And I was there at the genesis of that and uh, was working at Fox doing internet safety and security and local state lobbying for them. And um, it was just, it was like the movies. I was working in Beverly Hills, you know, I'd walk into the office and everybody kind of had their own little style. Like all those movies where you see like the really open spaces where people are like playing video games, stuff like that. Like that was real. Like that was how it was. It was, and it was a cool environment. Um, but the work was intense because I worked on internet safety and security. And so basically my job was to um, uh, ensure that the lowest of the lowest people, sex offenders and, and gang members and people like that were not on the site and not doing illegal activity on the site. And I specifically worked to help um, protect minors on the site. And so my work was heavy. I had to like um, work with nonprofit organizations like the, um, the National Association for Missing and Exploited Children because we had pedophiles that were basically trying to use social media to, to trap children and thinking, you know, lure them in. Um, and so it was just really heavy work. Um, I tell people all the time that I have a different appreciation for law enforcement because of that work, because I realized that when you get in a mindset where you're dealing with just kind of like the most undesirable people every day, it changes you. I mean, I was going home and having nightmares because I, you know, I had people that were trying to contact me on social media because they thought that I was like a 16 year old little girl oh and the things, say, the things that they would do, it was just disgusting. And I, I didn't have a way to decompress from that. And so, you know, that's one of the things I've empathize with people in like law enforcement or like just in the social work environment where they have to deal with, you know, child abuse and, and, and stuff like that. It's, it's hard and it's heavy. And at the time, thankfully I didn't have children. I don't think I could have done it if I had children. Um, but it was just really hard for me. So the work was too heavy. And that's ultimately why I decided to leave because, um, it was a lot of work. I had to manage, um, people not only in the States, but I was working with Australia, uh, state government affairs groups as well. And it was just a lot of work, a lot of hours. That's when I read the four hour work week. And I was just like, no, this is not what I want to do. I got to do something else. So, yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like you, you know, you learn what you need to learn there. You had an awesome time while you're there, but take it, take, you took on a lot of weight and it's a lot to do. You're not having time to decompress. You know, it's so important to, to take care of our mental health and to have some kind of buffer to keep, you didn't have a family at the time, thank God. Yeah. But to have, to, to, to have a 
to have some kind of buffer between work and home so they don't bring all that stuff home. But like you said, you didn't have that at that time. So the wages got incredibly heavy. So that's that's actually why you end up leaving in in the long run. Um, I do want to talk about one thing because I know my mom is going to listen to this. She's going to say, see, I told you. So so my my dad's an investment banker and he's been an investment banker since the 80s. And I'm a, I'm a wealth advisor, so we're in the same industry. And she's been telling us to learn how to golf. She said, you got to learn how to golf. <laughs> and I'm like, Mom, I'm, I'm a boxer. My dad's like, I'm, my dad still thinks he's in the NBA. My dad still plays basketball at 66 years old every day. <laughs> and she's like, you guys are play, practicing the wrong sport. You got to golf. So after hearing that story, I think it's time I pick up the clubs. <laughs> Yeah, I was golfing um, in my early 20s because, you know, just just doing it for fun. My, girl, my girlfriends and I and I've not once I had kids, I stopped golfing. But yeah, it definitely there. There is some someone said at one time that deals are made on the golf course. And I'm like, yeah, that's true, because I, I specifically remember being in, in a group of four and we were just talking about stuff just out on the, you know, out on the nine. And uh the woman was like, oh, like you, you work at SAG, you know, do you ever think about leaving? And that's how it happened. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> hey, well, I'm going to, I'm going to take your advice. And I'm going to pick them up. I know I need to be out there. I'm so competitive. I don't want to get out there and suck. And I know it's in the end. And I know I probably suck when I start. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's frustrating because you think this little ball, you can, you know, it's be so easy, but like, I can't tell you how many times I swiped at the ball and missed it and been like, man, like I'm keeping my eye on the ball. Why is this not working? <laughs> the, the other thing I don't want to do is slow the game down. Cause I know like you got to wait for everybody who's in your oh, group. Yeah. So how are you able to handle that? Just, this might not even go on air. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny story is my husband and I just recently went to Pebble beach to, to golf. And, um, it was, you know, Pebble beach is like a, a well-known golfing experience. Um, we didn't know what the heck we were doing. I mean, like I said, my, we, we'd go to the driving range. They have like top golf, which is a really cool way to just kind of go and hang out and golf. And so we we're kind of like those types of golfers. They're not serious golfers at all. And we kept people like they literally called like the little, um, was the guy like the, not the warden, but like the, <clears throat> the proctor on us because we were holding up people's games. We were like, I mean, it was, so I'm not the person to formally tell you the best etiquette, golf etiquette. I'm, I'm the worst person. I like to go out and have fun and just enjoy myself. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I, I don't want, I don't want to get the proctor called on me. So I don't want to be yeah. that guy. So let's yeah. move on to the next question. Uh-huh. <laughs> One that's more up your alley. Okay. So you eventually left um, Fox News. Yeah. So- because there's just too much weight and it wasn't what you necessarily wanted to do. And you started working into, in the charter school space. So let's, I know a lot of people, a lot of our listeners have a misunderstanding about what charter schools are. And um, so why don't you share a little bit about with our listeners about what charter schools are are, and the the value they they offer to the public. Yeah. um, Let me first and foremost say that if you're African-American and you are in the public education system in California, you really need to think about switching that and going into a charter school. Um, the, the, the data that shows how poorly African-American students are doing in the public education system, it should be criminal. It is ridiculous. Um, African-American students are the lowest performing subgroup in the entire state, which means that below people who have ELL and SPED, 
are African Americans. Like that, we are not able for whatever. No, no, let me let me change that. It's not that we are not able, because we are very much able. But for some reason, the public education system doesn't seem to be able to know how to educate African Americans appropriately. And I say that with straight conviction because African American students, African American people are are brilliant. You know, we are resilient. We have created our cultures from nothing. We have created wealth from nothing. So it is not that we are impossible to teach. It is not that it's impossible for us to learn. Um, for some reason, there is some disparity in the ability to teach us that has caused um, for some major alarms. And so I say that first and foremost, because when I learned about charter schools, as you can probably attest to as well, I realized that here was an opportunity for my children to get an education that's tuition free, that is quality, and that that is the education that they deserve, and that can be very intentional about things that are important to me and my family, things like culture, things like um, character, things that you just aren't really get, that you don't really get at the public education system directly, you can get it indirectly. and like I said, and, and you don't have to pay for it. It's, it's not, you're not going to a private school where you've got to you know, spend an arm and a leg to get an education as well, especially in a state like California where everything is so expensive. So that was the draw for me, um, was seeing, you know, at the time I was volunteering, because at this time I lived in, on the East Coast, I was living in New York and I volunteered at a school, a KIPP school, a KIPP charter school. And the school was um, not too far away from a, uh, a Brooklyn project, um, you know, p- public housing. And I would go into the school. And first of all, the principal was a black man. He had cornrows in his hair, but he came in a suit every day. Um, and looking on the walls, there were things like be kind, you know, expect excellence. The whole environment was different. And these were children who literally, you know, were coming from housing projects. And I went on a trip with this the sixth grade class and uh, we went to Utah and these kids, first time they've ever been on the plane, first time they've ever been to Utah, anything like that. And uh, I remember, this is a long story, but I, I remember this Utah. is what we were, uh, we were water rafting, you know, like floating down the river on the Colorado river. And this kid um, looks up at the rocks He's like, yo, son, those are sedimentary rocks. Breaking <laughs> <laughs> down the rock formations. He's like, and you can see in that layer right there that they probably had a drought. And he's just like looking at the layers on the rocks. And I looked, I was like, I could, I mean, like, yo, son, those are sedimentary rocks, right? It was like hilarious to me, but at the same time, I was like, that's what I'm talking about. Like, he's learning and he has adapted his learning to his life. And it just, it just floored me. And so I just fell in love with the whole idea of charter schools because I realized that what charter schools do is that they have autonomy over, you know, traditional schools. So you can go into a charter school and every charter school is different. They kind of serve as a nonprofit. Um, And each charter school can cater their curriculum to the students that they serve instead of, instead of catering to the system. Our public education system is all about just the cross the board cookie cutter standards that not every child falls into. I mean, you know, you have two children. I have two, I have three children, two that are in, um, that are in um, elementary school. They're only a year apart and they learn totally different. And so why do we invest in a school system that only wants to teach people in a linear way, in a certain way? And then if you don't learn in that way, then they tell you that something's wrong with you. 
And I specifically find that happening to our African-American students. So that was my motivation for um, not only working in a charter school, but I actually founded a charter school um, for that same reason, because we needed to have more of those opportunities. And it's always a rub with people who work in the traditional public school system because they immediately say, you know, charter schools are bad for us. They're trying to privatize education. Like there's all these, you know, misnomers about what charter schools are about. Um, But the reality is like, you know, if it works, then why can't you have more than one option? You know what I mean? Like you can have your public schools that work really well, but also you need to have another option when, when public schools have failed our kids. And I, you know, and then I feel like in our community specifically, the public education options aren't that great. And so to have more charter school options is, is, is good. No, I, I can definitely attest to that as someone who went to charter school and my daughter who goes to charter school. And I know I struggled a lot in public school. I, I got kicked out of several schools. I landed at a charter school and I, I was I, and like I was on I was on the like within the first week they got kicked me out of there too. And I sat down with the teacher and he talked to me and like he he I could no one I could tell he cared about me for no reason. But yeah. I knew he, I knew he cared about me. And then number two, he made an effort to learn how I learn. And like, that's something I took into adulthood. Like, like, cause at that point, like, I think I'm done. Like, I, uh, that, I don't yeah. think I can do it. I, I, at that age, I, there's no way you could tell me I'd be a wealth advisor one day. Cause right. I didn't think I knew how. But he said, no, this is how you learn. He showed me how I learned. And like me knowing that at that age, it propelled me to so much success at, after school. Because I realized, oh, this is what works for me. It's not that I'm done. I just don't learn this way. Yep. And yeah. th- that's huge, man. So I really appreciate what you do. I didn't know you founded a charter school. <laughs> so let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about that for a bit. Yeah, I founded a charter school. I was I was living in New Jersey and um <clears throat> I was working for a trade association up there and doing my consulting work on the side. And a lot of my consulting work is um kind of being the bridge builder between groups. And so, like I said, in the charter school space, it is very political at times um, because, you know, and, and I will, in all fairness, there are charter schools, there are for-profit charter schools that are exactly that. They're there because they know that they can make a profit off of, um, you know, saying that they're serving a certain group of students. You know what I mean? Like, literally, there's big money in it. I mean, in, in Jersey specifically at the time, uh, the per-pupil funding was about anywhere from 17000 to 21000 a kid. So if you were able to open up a charter school and have, you know, almost full autonomy over the, the budget of those funds, you know, you, you become a millionaire overnight. Um, and so it is, it is critical that there be an understanding of the need to um, not abuse the system, just like we don't abuse, you know, the education, the public education system. But needless to say, uh, I got involved in this founding this charter school because there was a gentleman who was coming to Jersey and he wanted to invest in Newark, New Jersey, and a charter school. And I'd worked ex- exclusively in Newark. Um, there were at the time a, a, a lot, I think about a third of the charter schools in the whole entire state of New Jersey were in Newark. And so um, I knew a lot of the schools really well, knew a lot of the parents really well. I'd done a lot of parent trainings on the side about parent advocacy and getting out the vote and things like that. So that's how I met him. And he was like, I want to open up a school in Newark. And I was like, you're never going to open up a school in Newark because it's too political. Um, and he, he, you know, he basically challenged me and was like, well, I think I can do it. And I was like, all right, well, try it for six months. And when you don't do it, come back to me and I'll, I'll you know, give you some alternatives. So it was strictly me being a consultant for him to scout out like op- other opportunities for him to open up a school. And um, he just realized how much knowledge I had, not only about 
the ability to open up a school, but just the political game, right? Like, how do you open up a school? Because people had tried to apply for charter schools in the, in the past, and they just didn't know the right language to be able to be effect, effective. So um, because of that, he was like, well, you know what? You'd be a great founder, a board chair for my, my charter school, because you know so much, you know all the players. Um, I was working directly with the Department of Education, who were basically the authorizers of the charter schools. And so I was like, all right, but you know, I'm only going to do this if your charter school model is um, specifically serving, um, you know, students of color, and if your teaching population um, mirrors the students that they're serving. Um, and so he he wholeheartedly agreed with that. Um, I was able to bring in board members. I brought in two other board members of color because a lot of times, in that sector as well, and in other sectors, you have you know, all these people who want to do great work for people of color, but then when you get up to the top levels of the board, there's no one of color. Um, and so that power dynamic is off. And so I was able to shift that. And, and now I, I would happy to say, I'm, you know, no longer the board chair there, obviously, but the school's been running now for, I believe, it's going into its sixth year, I believe. So yeah, it's going into its sixth year. So it's successful and they've opened up other charter schools and it's doing really well. No, that's huge. You know, you said at the beginning of this podcast, you know, you've been driven to serve. You always like to serve. And I can just tell just by your path and your journey, how you've been walking in your calling. So that's awesome. You know, I'm big on helping people understand that, like, they find your purpose, find what, find what fulfills you, find your calling and find a way to make money doing that. Don't, don't, don't find a career based on the job, find a career based on your passion and then find a way to use your passion to make money. Absolutely. So, and you've been, you're, you're, you're walking proof, living proof of that. So that's awesome. I'm sure you're happy just because of that. Yeah, I am. I am. I've definitely been somebody that is, that has used that model. Um, and like I said, I, I'm not as religious as my, my family, you know, my family is, but you know, they definitely say that, you know, if you can't find your destiny, it's actually a sin to not be able to walk into the, the greatness that God has given all of us. We all have a calling on this earth. And we all have uh, gifts and talents that are, have been bestowed to us because we are blessed children of God. And if you are not tapped into that, um, you're actually missing out on a lot. And so, you know, when my mother makes comments like that, it always reminds me like, okay, I'm doing this. I want to, my, my sole success is being able to have my creator say job well done. Like that's where my success comes from. Amen. You answered my last question. We'll go back there. <laughs> but, but no, that, excuse me, I disagree so much on that. And, you know, and that's something that people struggle with dealing with, you know, especially like me, former athletes like me, you know, we feel like our purpose is to do this sport or do this thing we're really good at. And that's something we're passionate about, but God gives us a passion that we're never going to outlive. Like I realized through this career and through other things in my life, my real passion is helping people. Yeah. That's what I'm good at boxing. I was good at boxing, but God didn't mean that. That God didn't do that to me to last forever. He had other plans for me. And now I feel like I'm walking my calling. I don't wake up and go to work every day. I work, I wake up and say, who am I going to help today? And I love what I do. And it, awesome. it sounds like you're kind of saying the same thing. And, you know, as someone like you and someone like me, it's, it's it could be tough sometimes to see ourselves as successful because we don't always see the next level and we're always looking ahead about where we can go next and what the next big project or the next thing God puts on our heart and let's go get it. But one thing I do know is that you're a lot more successful now than you were when you 
had nothing. He only had twenty dollars in your bank account. <laughs> so let's say you had a time machine could go back in time. What are some things you go back in time and tell you a younger Jay about just financially, just talking to everybody, staying on the path, or just a word of encouragement for the younger listeners? What would you tell your younger self? Yeah, that's actually a really good question, and and I think self reflection is really good. And I've actually thought about that question a lot. Um, I would tell my younger self to pace myself, um, not be in a rush to have all the things, but to be smart about the things that I wanted out of life. Um, I am proud to say that I waited to get married and have children to be able to live my life in a certain way. And, and I, my younger self didn't know that. I learned that just from trial and error. So if I had to speak to my younger self, I would say like, you know, don't be disturbed by a biological clock and don't be disturbed by other people saying you've got to be all these things by a certain age. This is your journey. Um, You live it the way you want to live it. And I find myself having to have that conversation a lot with younger women who are in the professional field because they they do feel this pressure of like, I've got to get all this done at the same time. If I want to have children, you know, when do I get that done? How do I get that done? Um, do not let that be uh, a barrier for you. Um, I would also tell my younger self that, you know, don't trick off your savings. is <laughs> 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 um, definitely important to have a safety net, whatever it may be, whether it be, you know, an emergency credit card or something like, you know, do not put yourself in a financial woe especially when you're younger, because as you mentioned, um, you know, when you just have yourself to take care of, you can make a lot more sacrifices than when you have to bring a child into the world or a partner into the world. And so better it be to make those sacrifices than, like you said, you know, not maybe having the best looking car, but knowing that, you know, you have a great savings that can get you that car later. You know, things like that are important. So um, I just, I think pacing yourself is probably the best thing I would say is that, you know, everything comes in due time. Um, know that this your journey is yours individually and it's unique to you. Um, so don't try to you know run with the Joneses and do what other folks are doing. Um, listen to your heart. Listen to yourself. Find times to be spiritual and to just be quiet and be still and take in the universe because we're all connected in different ways. And sometimes when we're young, we miss those opportunities to just you know sit back and realize that this earth is beautiful, that this pre- our presence here is beautiful, and um, you know, if you can do that at a younger age, it definitely will inspire you and, and, and help you be more grounded when you get older. Okay. So the big thing I'm taking from that is pace yourself, you know, pay, yeah. pay, the, that's kind of the, the, um, the theme of that is pace yourself. And not, I think that's super important. You know, I mean, with a lot of younger people and they want to save, it'll be a dollar amount, like a million dollars. Or mm-hmm. I want to say a million dollars by the time I'm 40 or a million dollars yeah. by the time. And it's, and it's based on nothing. It's based yeah. on what the million dollars is a, is a big number. Are you six years old? Like it's just, it's just a right. big, <laughs> but, but there's nothing behind that. And it's like, well, I feel like this guy did it so I can do it. Or, but it's, but like, you don't have to, you're not that guy. And right. you don't live his life. And you're not, uh, another guest on my show recently said, run your own race and you're not running his race. Yes. So you don't have to, like, you don't have to be married by 30. You don't mm-hmm. have to own a house by 31. You don't have to be, uh, we, uh, what's the word, financially free by 40. Right. But, but you have to do what's going to work for you. What's going to yeah. make you enjoy it. Like I said, it's financial success to me is 
enjoying your life now while tracking towards your future. Yeah. So. I'm so glad you said that because <clears throat> the, so <laughs> just, you may want to edit this or whatever. We can talk mm-hmm. about this again. The funny thing about my story that I, that I'm going to mention now, because you said something that just triggered for me. Um, so I had a, my friend was basically my boyfriend. His, his, his father was the one who helped me because we were, we were dating. We dated for eight years. So pre- pretty much my, my young adult life, I was, you know, booed up <laughs> with this, with this guy who had that vision. Um, the great thing about it is that I was with someone who was very successful, um, and very driven and very ambitious. Um, but he was like, I want to be a millionaire by 30. I want to have a house by 31. And, you know, and he, mind you, he accomplished all that. But in the course of us being together, that wasn't my vision. And I was just like, and, and I didn't feel comfortable with being a part of that for him. And so I literally, you know, we were engaged to be married and I walked away. And it was really hard for me because he did become a millionaire at 30 and he did, you know, buy a house. And that was at the same time where I was really trying to reevaluate what I was going to do with my life. And so my girlfriends and my family were like, what are you doing? You know, but it just something, there was something spiritual in me that was just like, this isn't right. I don't feel settled yet. I don't feel like I've, I've kind of learned enough about myself. And that was really hard, especially being a young woman, because you've been with this person for eight years. You know, you've built a life with him. It's almost like getting a divorce you see him go off and continue his success and you're still kind of struggling. It was a hard pill for me to swallow. And it took me several years um, to kind of start dating again and realize like, you know, am I okay? Like, did I make a mistake because I walked away from that? Um, And I, I feel like young women need to hear that story a lot because sometimes we tie ourselves to our partners and we feel like we've got, it's good to have a partner and I believe in having a partner in, in the work that you do, but, but don't lose yourself in the process. Like, you know, be an individual and don't take on somebody else's identity and thinking and think that that's your success. No, I think that's huge. I'm definitely going to leave this in the podcast. That's a huge story that so many people can learn from. And one thing you said there was that you didn't buy into the vision and this is for the men. So who are, who are, you guys weren't married. So, but for the men who are married, when you're married, you got to make sure your wife ties into that vision because she's on that, whether you, whether she's involved or not, you know that she's on that same ship you're on. Mm-hmm. And so, so you got to have the, the tie in and the belief of the crew. And that comes down to letting them know where they're going. People yeah. want to know, people want to know where you're going. So at least he did that. So you had the option, you were able to say before you guys got married, you were able to say, you know, that's not where I want to go. Right. I'm, I'm letting me get off because it's important to get that buy-in from both sides, and, and if you and if you don't agree, to let let the, your spouse know this is not what I, this is not what I see for my life. Like you did, I mm-hmm. let your boyfriend the time. This is not what I see for my life, so I'm gonna get off. The, I'm gonna off of the next stop. But and yeah. he's there, now he's been able to go do what he needs to do. And yeah. look at you now, you're successful, and it's because you. I know that you heard God. You heard God at that time saying you got to tell him this because it's not. That's never a comfortable decision. It's never a com- comfortable conversation. Mm-hmm. But you you still did it. So I know that was a complete God thing. You're obedient. And because of that now you have a beautiful family. I'm sure yes. you have a good husband. You're happy. And yes. your guests on the Million Dollars of Money podcast. So what better, how much better can it get? Yeah, I have arrived. <laughs> yeah. You're, today, this morning, 8 a.m., you officially arrived. <laughs> okay, so we're at the end of the podcast now, Jane. You've been an awesome guest. Thank you so much for coming on. 
And this is the last question of this show. You know, the words financial success means different things to different people. It means different things to the same people at different times. Like what financial success meant to you when you were a child isn't what financial success meant to you when you only had $20 in the bank. Isn't what what financial success means to you today. But we're talking about today. So today, uh, 2021, January 2021, what does the words financial success mean to you, Jay? Financial success means to me being able to secure a legacy for my children. Um, It's very much that wealth management that we talk about. Um, Whatever I do, whatever I accomplish right now, um, if it dies with me, then I haven't been successful. So it's really about um, having the financial security and the success to know that my children are going to be okay and that the legacy of my family is going to be stable. Okay, no, that's a that's a great answer. Just being able to secure a legacy for your family, and you know, I'm big on I'm big on financial success not being a dollar amount, but being a lifestyle. And I gotta say, just and I'm sure you agree agree with me. I get your buy-in after after I say it though. But I the biggest part about securing a legacy for a family is education. It, It doesn't matter how much money you leave them. If you don't give them the right education, the right foundation, and the right mindset going forward, then you haven't done your job. But yeah. if you give them the right education behind that, that legacy will last for generations to come. That's so true. That is and, and, and immensely true. I think that you know, even though my mother and father were not able to pay for my education, um, they instilled in me a work ethic that I knew that you know, from a very long, young age, how important it was for me to be independent and take care of myself. And I, you know, I thank them for that. And then. Like I said, with my friends and my and my friends' parents, who definitely did have an education, it was very much instilled in me that like this is your this is your path to freedom. The more that you can educate yourself, the more that you can learn about the world around you, um, the more successful you're going to be. And that definitely starts with an education for sure, with a good education. Yeah, that's right. and and look at you today. You're you're providing that good education for thousands of kids all over the state. So that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. It's important. It's it's especially for for our folks, for Black folks, and for you know African Americans and Latinos and people of color who have had those types of opportunities um, not available to us. Um, often being told that you know we can't learn. I I think about when I was living in another country and how hard it was for me to speak Spanish. Um, but no one looked at me and, and made me feel like I was dumb. You know what I mean? It was like you just have to learn our language. Whereas you have people who are immigrants to this country who will be looked at as they're dumb because they can't speak English. And it's so ignorant on the, on the, on the role of the teacher to think that way. And so it just, it's a really a mindset shift for all of us. Um, and I really believe that it, like you never stop learning. I think it's another thing that keeps you young is to always be looking for opportunities to uh, educate yourself and learn. Uh, okay, Jay, that was awesome. And you've been an awesome guest. I'm so glad you t- tuned in. Um, if it's okay with you, I'd like to leave some, maybe your, I don't know if you have any social media, but any, any links to where, where our listeners can contact you, I'd like to leave in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, guys. I hope you guys really enjoyed the show. You guys have a blessed week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Congratulations, guys. You've officially made it to the disclosure portion of the show. I'm an investment advisor representative of securities offered through Bertha Fisher & Company, Financial Services, Inc. BFCFS member FINRAS-SIPC. Holmes Financial is independent of BFCFS. Thanks and have a blessed week.